Good morning. Praise the Lord for good music. Amen. Good gracious. Brother, I just want to affirm you, Daniel. I've uh, been in a lot of churches across the state and really in the world, and there are a few places where I think the ministry of music is as vibrant and soul-stirring as here. So thank you for leading out well in that. Um, yeah. If you've never been to Botswana, Africa, that's probably the only place that I could say it is. Everything's four-part harmony. Everybody can sing, and it's fantastic, man. <laughs> if you will, turn with me to Hebrews uh, chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 23 through 40 today. Uh, as they've said, my name's Josh Reed. My wife and I, uh, Jacelyn, have been married now, praise God, for 15 years. Uh, we have six kids. They'll be rolling through here in a little bit. They were at the triathlon this morning. Uh, I think my, my youngest daughter's finishing up now. So uh, my mom's going to be with them. Praise the Lord. She's here today. Uh, I grew up in a pretty legalistic, moralistic type environment and uh, where, you know, you just kind of be a good person, go to church, and do whatever you really want to. Um, and I was completely addicted to the acceptance of others and would do whatever it took to get it. And so that, if that meant being the best in the classroom, the best at the party on Friday night, the best on the basketball court, I just wanted the pat on the back. And it led me down a lot of paths that I, I uh, never really thought I would be running down until one day I heard the good news of Jesus. And God opened my ears, he opened my eyes, and he opened my heart. And I received the forgiveness that came through Christ and power in the Holy Spirit to change. I didn't deserve it. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. And really the last, that, that happened in around 2003. And, and the last 14 years have, have been a, a growing in this acceptance that God freely gives in Christ. What I was always trying to get from other people, what I really needed was God's acceptance. And he said, I freely give it to you. Trust my son. And so now I get to spend the rest of my days inviting people into that acceptance and that life. Whether there's two days left, two decades, or if the Lord tarries or keeps me alive, maybe 40 years, I don't know. But I'm grateful for the opportunity. There was a moment, though, uh, about a year or so into the faith that, um, as George mentioned, he came into my life and really just took me under his wing, began teaching me how to look at the word and teaching me what this life of Christ really is like, this life of self-giving love, of giving yourself away for the sake of others, of really helping to dismantle everything that I thought Christianity was, of this, hey, Jesus, just come alongside of this vision for my life and make it better, versus, no, the Christian life is one of how do we uh, surrender our lives to Jesus so we can display him to the world. That's a fundamentally different view than what I always thought Christianity was. Where God calls us further up and further in to use C.S. Lewis's language. Of giving ourselves away for the sake of others. Even at great cost. As you can tell, I'm a crier, so just want to put you at ease. That's no totally normal for those of you who know me. Uh, that will happen probably often. Um, but we were sent out from here in 2013 to plant uh, Oaks Church, and, and really our, our goal was to experiment with a disciple-making movement, not just plan a congregation or plan a Sunday service, but how do we actually see a, a movement take place? And the Lord, uh, we, as we were recounting this past year, the Lord virtually answered every one of our prayers that we prayed in 2013. We just began recounting all the prayers we prayed in Larry and Stephanie Lyons' garden in 2012. And the Lord answered every one of them. About a year and a half ago, though, I started asking this, the great existential question, who am I? You know, who am I? How am I built? God, how have you made me? And through season of prayer and fasting, uh, I... I began asking this question, am I evangelist who's pastoral 
or am I a pastor who's evangelistic? And maybe those are too rigid, uh, but I began to land coming back from Africa, coming back from Tampa and training the guys down there on just the sense that uh, even though I may have some pastoral qualities to myself that the Lord's given me, um, really my heart's desire is to see how do we equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, particularly in just simply making disciples what George did for me. And so I went before the church in January and just put this before them, and they affirmed uh, these things in me. And within about a week, the state convention reached out. We got connected and began dialoguing about a role they had opened up for consulting for adult disciple-making for the churches across North Carolina. At that time, the elders were going to set aside the next three to four months to begin to reorganize for all of what that would mean. And in February, everything turned in our lives. My father's health took a nosedive. Larry Lyon had to rush him to the hospital in February. His health was in bad shape. Another one of the elders' father, extremely sick with cancer. Another one of the elders uh, was traveling, looking at and, and beginning the process of adopting from India and all that that took place. In April, my father passed away from acute leukemia. And so all this time that we had set aside to begin to reorganize, we had barely even met because we were just trying to hang on in our personal lives. And I don't know, when a key person in your life dies, it puts something up before you. And you begin to ask a question like, what am I going to give myself for for the rest of my life? The state ended up hiring me in May. And um, we just simply, the elders were asking different questions in May at that point. <clears throat> With all those things that we were going through. Um, my mother-in-law at the end of May was actually diagnosed with acute leukemia as well. And so we've been going back and forth to Atlanta. And I say all that to say, <clears throat> we had to begin asking some different questions as a church. And what we did was we had a couple of meetings and we, we gave people off-ramps to say, we know there's going to need to be some reorganization of the church here. And so we let us help you land in healthy churches, including this one. I see some of you here. And it's so good to see your faces again. Um, but Oaks is still alive and kicking. It's currently meeting as a house church. Uh, Justin White and some other faithful men are, are leading that. And today they're actually having uh, at least one, maybe two baptisms. And so this, it's still going. This, this vision that we were sent out of here with is still continuing to move forward, both in our personal lives and in the corporate life of Oaks Church. This was a lady that, on a whim, uh, a neighborhood that we were prayer walking this lady's husband, uh, father passed and said, hey, we don't have any relationships to church. Will you guys do the funeral? So we drove up to Henderson, did the funeral, met this couple there. They've since come to faith in Christ, and today their daughter's getting baptized. And so it's just, <laughs> it's just things like that that you just say, God, like, continue to press the mission forward in the hearts of your people, whether it's here in Northwake Oaks or somewhere else. Continue to press that desire to give our lives away for the sake of others that could change generations of families. <clears throat> My family is praying through some next steps as to what's, uh, what's the wisest for us, for our neighbors that we're trying to reach for Oaks. And so if you would pray for us as we're in this season, if you want to talk more about that after this, I'd be more than happy to. I need to move into the text, though. <clears throat> um, it's been the hardest year of my life. And I did end up getting hired at the state, and I'm grateful for that because um, there's a simplicity to what they've asked me to do, which is basically help churches remember why we exist, and that's to make disciples. It's an equipping role, and I'm grateful for that. So please be in prayer for, for us in that as well. Most important thing today isn't, though, the changes uh, that's been going on in our life. It's the changes that God wants to make in and through each one of us from his word. And so today we're going to turn to the back half of Hebrews 11. And I just want you to listen to who is present there. A mother 
contemplating abortion with government pressure. A member of a majority culture trying to understand how to best leverage his power and serve and give his power away to minority culture. An immigrant leaving his country in search for truth, changing jobs in the process. A people group learning how to live free from slavery. A woman racked with guilt and shame responding to the good news of salvation no matter what the cost. Politicians empowered so that they can actually make good on their promises. People experiencing legit miracles. People experiencing intense sufferings for a greater cause than themselves. These people in Hebrews 11 are normal people who at some point or another were faced with decisions. We all face decisions daily, small and big, but they have massive ramifications, not only for our life now, but for all eternity. These people in this chapter of Hebrews 11 were given some of the most glorious titles ever bestowed upon men. God is not ashamed to be their God, and the world is not worthy of them. I mean, you want something on your epitaph? There's a couple of options right there. There's nothing else that matters more than those two things. That God, is God ashamed to be your God? Is the world worthy of you or not? Wow. And so what's the difference? What was it that fueled these men and women to gain such lofty titles versus other titles we see in the scriptures, like in Judges, worthless men? In Proverbs, the wicked, the foolish. What was the difference? Well, in a word, it's faith. That's not gonna cut it, is it? That's gonna need some splaining. And I'm gonna attempt to do that, but I wanna tell you the author is bent on making us believe it has everything to do with what or whom you see and I see as reward. There's this tight link between faith, hope, and seeing. The banner that hangs over it all is Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this is a fascinating theme throughout all of Scripture that we can track, but we're going to look at it in three other places. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says it a little different. He says, for we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, in this uh, passage of anxiety and what we see as reward. He says, look, if your eye is bad, if your eye, this, this context of seeing, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is that weird verse in between God and money can't serve. And you're like, how does that fit in? It's because Jesus is tying in seeing and reward to what animates our lives. In Romans 8, 24, Paul says it like this. He says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. If you can see it, you don't need to hope in it. Who hopes in what he sees? And so there's this link between faith and hope and seeing that we're going to see play itself out in the lives of the saints in Hebrews 11 today. So grateful for Carson and for Ben's sermons the last two weeks. If you haven't listened to them, carve out some time to do so. Do it with an open Bible and a pencil or a pen and possibly a tape player because Ben was quoting Journey, <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> as I took that as a sign to quote more 80s songs today. And so uh, I'm really just restating what they've said. Now I'm going to do it in the country grammar because I'm from Buford, Georgia. But I'm just going to basically restate what they've said through the context of these next verses. And, the, and, and we're boiling it down to this. We're going to examine three characteristics of faith today. Listen, because I'm going to need some, clock, some call back. All right. Faith is a matter of choice. Faith is expressed in actions. And faith is fueled by reward. Say it with me. The first one. Faith is a matter of? Faith is expressed in? And faith is fueled by? 
And if you're wondering where we're going, Jesus' great delight is to be one with his bride. He has secured himself as the reward for her based on the promises in this word. Therefore, trust him to make good on those promises and keep running. Today I'm going to preach on the eyes of faith, but let's take a second to pray and ask the Lord to give us great grace in this time. Father, help us now. Do what only you can do. By your spirit, only you can awaken hearts. Only you can open eyes. And only you can animate our lives. But you give us this thing called faith. We're built with it. We're hardwired with it. Help us now today to locate that faith on the person and work of your son afresh. So that we might be conformed into his image again today. Woe be to me if I don't preach the gospel today. Make us strong out of weakness and transform us to persevere and endure and to take risk for the sake of the gospel. Begging you, God, do it in us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Listen to these this tight link between faith, hope, and seeing, starting in verse 23. It says this. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? This man's preaching, by the way. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now the original hearers are in danger of walking away from the true faith, not persevering to the end, not enduring the race. Quite frankly, so are you and I every day. It doesn't happen in a blowout. It's always a slow leak. When, when, when the faith that we were um, when God awoke in our hearts for the first time begins to lose its luster, right? I think about this quote from Stanley Hauerwas about marriage. He says, you don't fall in love and then get married. You get married and then find out what love requires. And that's much about how this marriage relationship with Christ is. We think, oh, we get all these warm and fuzzy feelings and now I'm just gonna commit my life to you, Jesus. And it's like, then you find out what love requires. <laughs> and so when it begins to lose its luster, why? Why does it begin to do so? Be the reason is, is because of the things we see with these eyes. 
We begin to doubt. We begin to see these circumstances. And, and these things begin to affect us in real and tangible ways. And circumstances for these brothers and sisters are rough. I mean, we're talking persecution, the plundering of homes, the death of family members. It ain't like they stub and they toe and like, dang, Satan's after me today, you know. <laughs> nah, you clumsy. Like. <laughs> the particular danger for them is to revert to a more culturally acceptable form of religion that does not proclaim another Lord other than Caesar. That does not evangelize, that does not pursue righteousness and therefore does not get persecuted and is this not the danger that we are in daily to revert to a more culturally acceptable form of Christianity a crossless Christianity a conversionless Christianity this book is so important for us if you're just seeing with your eyes what's going on it's escalating in our own culture it's going to be less gray. We need this book. And the preacher knows the way to combat these doubts, the things we see with our eyes, is to renew the mind, to come back to the word. Because if he knows if there's no true faith rooted in something substantial, something objective, if we're only left to rely on our feelings and our circumstances, what we see with our eyes, we're toast. If we're left to our feelings and our eyes to find out if God is really trustworthy, if he's true, you will not endure. Satan's primary work is a blinding work. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. And so for believers, what's he try to do? He tries to mask over what we know to be true. He tries to put the blinders on so it steal the joy. For unbelievers, he tries to keep you in that suppression, that oppression of blindness. We need to the word to help us see what's really there. And so the three characteristics of faith. What are they again? First, faith is a matter of what? It's expressed in and fueled by. Faith then is a matter of choice. It's not an option. It's not an if. Faith isn't a matter of if. It's a matter of choice. And the reason is, is you and I are not all-knowing. We're not omnipotent. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. How many of you know what's going on in China right now? Like right now? None of us do. So we're living by some measure of faith that they're not aiming nuclear weapons at us right now. None of us know that to be true. We have some measure of faith. When you're not omniscient, when you're not omnipresent, you live by faith. Every human lives by faith. How many of you were 100% certain that when you got in your car this morning that it would crank, that it would work, and that it got you here? Some of you were like, man, I was sweating the whole way. <laughs> I know, right? My, my truck's like 18 years old. I'm like, come on, baby. That you were not going to crash. How many of you were 100% certain that that was the case? None of us were. None of us. Everyone lives by faith. And based on your manual, past experiences, driving skills, gas needle, general driving conditions on the road, you know, you preferred that over, you know, what rival cars say about your car, consumer reports, and news that everything's bad. You're like, no, I'm going to get in the car and go. My kids today, they have faith based on my past activity that when I'm in Wake Forest and a promise I gave them this morning that we're going to go to Yumpy's Ice Cream before we leave Wake Forest. Molly always called it yumpies, not lumpies. Yumpies. Look at the examples here. Moses' parents had choice to fear the king or to fear the Lord. They chose to fear the Lord. 
Moses had the choice to be identified with the people of God over Egypt. He preferred God's leading than the comfort of the only thing he's ever seen and known. He chose God's word over his feelings. Israel preferred God over enslavement, at least for a moment, right? Rahab preferred obedience to God over disobedience. She, she preferred God over herself and her country and all she's ever known and seen. In the various uh, Rolodex here at the end, the preferred suffering and pain and homelessness and bad fashion because of the Lord over comfort and ease and bougie and fancy. These are choices. Faith is a matter of choice. You live by faith. I live by faith in something or someone. It's not an option. It's not a matter of if. And so the question is, who or what is your faith located in? What have you pushed all your chips in on? What is it? It's not rocket science to figure out. Pull out your bank statement and your calendar and examine the conversations that we've had the last couple of weeks. Look at how you've responded to pain or disappointment, response to success. Examine the thoughts. If they were projected up here right now, where would faith be? What am I choosing to put my faith in? And how satisfied am I in it? The higher the trustworthiness of the object of your faith to deliver on its promises is directly tied to your certainty and satisfaction in it. The higher the trustworthiness of the object of our faith to deliver on its promises is directly tied to certainty and satisfaction in it. First, faith is a matter of what? Secondly, it's expressed in true faith does not stay in the theoretical realm. It's not merely believing a set of doctrines to be true, though it's no less than that. True faith animates our lives like how I did the wave. Your faith in your car led you to actually get in it and drive here. My kids are purposely not going to eat a lot at lunch today. It leads to actions. If you didn't believe your car would get you here, you would have made other arrangements. Somebody else would have come and picked you up. You would have rode the bus. You would have walked. It led to specific actions evidencing the faith that you exhibited where you have chosen to place it in. Faith is expressed in actions. Moses' parents chose life over death for their kid. Uh, let me take a second to address something. Um, I'm not gonna post up here for long. But as someone who has a lot of sexual baggage in his past and who has multiple family members who've had abortions, this text gets really close really fast and if you succumbed to only what your eyes could see and chose perhaps not to trust God in a situation such as this I want to encourage you to open up about it and find the healing that comes in the telling you can't go back and redo the scene though you've thought about it 10,000 times there are no redos in the Christian life, but there is redemption. And I promise you that if you'll trust him in this most vulnerable of places for you, he almost always makes it the most fertile place for ministry. There's a Switchfoot song that says, the wound is where the light shines through. And if we consistently try to hide the deepest wounds, the light gets dim. Hope counseling here in your small group. There's healing in the telling. 
And if I can direct your eyes to verse 35 real quick. Though I'm sure there's some debate to this. It says, women received back their dead by resurrection. I really believe that if you place your faith firmly in Jesus, you will receive back your dead at resurrection. In the presence of the only one who could heal such wounds. Moses' parents chose life over death for their kid. Moses chose mistreatment with God's people over cultural status in Egypt. He left Egypt. He carried out the Passover. These are actions that were fueled by his faith. Israel actually walked through the Red Sea. Rahab showed hospitality to the Israel spies. And the various folks conquered kingdoms and enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. I got... What? I know there was other actors in that scene, but I just, I'm always blown away. Stop the mouths of lions. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, acted in faith, and these are the results. Again, we're trusting something or someone, and it is actually producing actions in our life because faith is expressed in actions it's inevitable there's a common conversation that I come across just in various relationships non-believers or people who've just kind of been around church and it says look I, I believe in God but and then the but is always in like this concept of why am I not changing and I was always wrestled with some of this because I'm like man but what it's boiled down to is the question comes back to well who is God who, I, I believe, I trust in God, but I, I, I'm not changing. And so I just begin to pick away at some of that and say, well, who is God? And what you begin to uncover is this cultural, truncated view of who the God who's revealed himself really is. And so what we're being transformed into isn't him and his likeness. It's in this view of God that we've projected onto him. We can say, I I, I trust God. My faith is in God. I believe that he saves people through the hearing of the gospel. We can argue it from the Bible and we can see it in all these verses. But if it doesn't animate my lips or your lips, do I truly believe that he he saves through the hearing of the gospel? Like Faith is expressed in actions. And we can say God loves widows and orphans and immigrants. And we can argue it from scripture. But if our dinner tables are not opening up to these widows and orphans and immigrants, do we actually believe this? And I'm not arguing for sinless perfection here. Clearly, we're talking about Moses and Israel and Rahab and Samson and the craziest dude in this whole text, Jephthah. Like, this guy's in this chapter? Like... I'm not arguing for sinless perfection. I'm arguing for faithful realism. And so where life doesn't match up with these statements that we make about faith, I just want to encourage you and and even myself afresh today to repent and come to this word and let God fill us up with fresh faith as he pours out his love to you and in you so that he stirs you up to heed the word's warnings to rest in its promises, to do the commandments, and to follow the examples that we find in here. That our life is progressively aligning with the word, with all kinds of hiccups along the way. This, this kind of life draws us into a deeper humility of our need for him. Faith is expressed in actions. It has to grow legs. It has to incarnate. It has to put on flesh. It animates our very lives. We live by faith. The question is, in what or whom? Faith is a matter of, it's expressed in, and thirdly, it's fueled by reward. Faith is always evaluating worth. 
It's always evaluating worth. What it, faith sees as reward gives fuel to act. If you want the reward of the approval of others, you'll do whatever it takes to get, to get it. And it depends on your matter of choice of who you think it will actually, they will give that to you. So you, I'm going to try to do what needs to happen with this group of people or this group of people or this group of people because I want their approval. I think that's going to give me the greatest reward. If you want reward or instant gratification and pick a category, ice cream, you'll do whatever it takes to get it. Somewhere, faith became a matter of choice in this thing. And that you should give your life to this and get the reward of it. I can't go through all the examples here, but I do want to zero in on Moses, particularly verse 25 and 26. Verse 25 says that Moses uh, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered, that's a valuative term, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. He considered, some of your translations may say he regarded he was leading out and thought. He, he had a lot of time to think through this before he just acted. This wasn't an impulsive decision. He had to consider what was real, what was right, and what was he going to commit his life to. He evaluated. And he chose conscious, careful decision, the mistreatment that comes to, from identification with the people of God than the fleeting pleasures of sin. God, would you help us to see today the enduring and lasting pleasure of your will over and against the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, the mistreatment, the slander, the reprimands, the outcastness that comes in identity with Christ against the treasures of Egypt. Now, if you picked up, the writer just said that Moses, from the Old Testament, considered the reproaches of Christ of greater value. This simply is showing us that this term Christ mirrors the Old Testament term of Messiah. And so all this bound up in the Messiah that Israel was looking forward to is bound up in the person and work of Jesus who is the Christ. And so the reproaches that come with faith in that Messiah are the same of the reproaches that come from us in our faith in that Messiah, that Christ so though they're just on different sides of the spectrum here, of the cross. One looking forward, the other looking back. It's still the reproaches of Christ, though. And what he's evaluating was this. Do I give up all this comfort, all this power? I mean, it's possible that he was going to be the next Pharaoh. <laughs> and he's evaluating do I give up all this comfort, all this power, all this luxury, all this bougie, all this stuff my eyes can see that could be here today and gone tomorrow? Or do I take up my metaphorical cross and follow this Messiah who has been long prophesied about in some ancient writings? <laughs> Faith is always valuing something as greater reward. And he saw that this Christ was greater than virtually anything this world has to offer. What is it for you? What is it that you see as reward? Moses was willing to give up his life in order to get 
what he could never lose. And now you know there were millions of times he was cleaning sheep poop for 40 years and leading some ornery, ungrateful people for 40 years in the wilderness, hungry, tired, where Moses was like, I gave up what for what? Like, what was I thinking? Uh, I know I'm reading into this a little bit. Point is, is it wasn't always easy. Just because he made this decision, he chose this path, wasn't mean it was going to be a, we just watched trolls all cupcakes and rainbows, you know. (laughs) It certainly wasn't going to be all cupcakes and rainbows. But the text says that he saw things with his eyes that could have knocked his legs out from under him. Just read through the Old Testament stories again. But his faith was expressed in actions. Particularly in prayers like Psalm 90, where he says this. In Psalm 90, 14, he says, Give us, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. (laughs) Satisfy us in the morning. And just before this, he says, Give us a heart of wisdom, that we we may know. We may consider the length of our days. And it takes some some gospel guts in the midst of all that death, in the midst of all that sorrow, thinking back of all that you, you let go of. It takes a fixed eye on the reward to persevere and press on. And we get the language of this man in the midst of many of his greatest trials to fuel our faith to keep our eyes fixed on the reward. His ability to to see the invisible helped me this past year. This psalm became everything for me in the hardest year of my life. The psalm has become everything. His ability to see the invisible spurred me on to press on and continues to. He's looking to the future reward, kept going. It's a real hope. And it was his faith in the promises of God was expressed in distinct actions that I'm sure were questionable to many who loved him and fueled by this future reward. So much so, Deuteronomy 34 says, verse 7, that at the end of his life, when he was 120 years old, says that his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And I don't think they're talking about passing the test at the optometrist with the big E on top at this point. I don't think that's what they're talking about here. He was fixed. His eye was fixed, undimmed on the reward that was coming. Fate's a matter of choice. It's expressed in actions. It's fueled by reward. All these examples, God was pleased to be called their God and the world was not worthy of them. And yet, Hebrews 11.39, and yet, Hebrews 11.39 says this. Though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Aha, you say, I knew God couldn't be trusted. He never delivers on his promises. If he doesn't give what he promises, YOLO, I'm about to go ham out here, right? Right? And, and, and folks, many people who come to church their whole life, but whose faith was never really rooted deep in these promises in the word that, trans- that has the power to transform us, never expressed itself in biblical actions and never really latched on to the true reward, end up giving up. And they go ham or settle for some truncated, culturally acceptable religion that minimizes the worth and work of Jesus. You see, Satan's work is a blinding work. And he's most active near the light. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves daily to see whether or not you're in the faith. And if this is somebody in here today, hold on before you just dip out on God. 
There's a comma after the verse 39, not a period. They did not receive what was promised, comma, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. You see, God's got this beautiful plan going down. And the plan is this. All the people of God from all time get to get the fullness of the reward all at the same time together. There's something better about that, God says. Now, I know that pushes against our individualistic society and impulses, but it's glorious. I just got a text from Jason that said Molly was on her last lap. Carter had already finished. A lot of people had already finished. Molly's my seven-year-old. First time she's doing this triathlon a day, and she's struggling. Last lap. And Jay said, Carter, who had already finished, just came alongside of her and just started running with her, encouraging her. Carter knew that if she was to give up then everything that she had lived for, she would regret it. These saints' stories, including my dad's now, are cheering us on. They finished the race, and yet they haven't received the fullness of what's coming just yet, though it's far more glorious than everything that anything they've ever experienced here. They're cheering us on because they know if we don't finish the race, we'll regret it for all eternity. Remember I said at the beginning, the higher the trustworthiness of the object of our faith to deliver on its promises is directly tied to certainty and satisfaction and endurance. And so today I simply want to say it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. And you're like, praise God. In our highly anxious society, Anxiety over assurance of salvation is like number one, particularly among teens. Our ability to endure, to persevere to the end is not ultimately based on our ability to be a boss. It's not the quality of your faith, it's the object. And if the object of your faith is Jesus... Well, he's batting a thousand on all his promises. You see, his great delight is to be one with his bride. But an arm ain't going in first, and then an ear, and then a nose, and then an eye. And this bride's coming in all together, beautiful and perfect and in full splendor. And who's going to get between a husband and his bride? He has secured for himself he has secured for himself a bride, and he has secured himself as the reward for his bride. Based on the promises in this world. Therefore, trust him to make good on these promises and keep running. He's trustworthy. He's done everything he said he was, including rising from the dead. That's a boss. And he said that whoever trusts him, places their faith in him, he will empower to live the life that he's called us to. He will empower us to change. Our life will begin aligning with his and all that's painful glory. And he's coming back to be united forever in joy with his bride. Before the father that he's been experiencing that joy for all eternity. That's what he's invited us into. That's what he's calling us into. And he's saying, keep running, because I'm coming. You see, Michael Reeves said, the problem isn't the loveliness of Jesus. He's been satisfying the Father for all eternity. It's not the loveliness of Jesus that's the problem. It's the blindness of our eyes. It's the blindness of our eyes 
This world has gone absolutely bonkers. This country is in its most fragile state that I've ever seen. And it'll cause you to doubt and lose heart or settle for some watered down form of godliness with no power. What takes precedent for you? What is it? Is it God's character and God's word or the things only that your eyes can see? Locate that faith in the promises of God that are all yes in Jesus. Live out the life of Christ that the word puts forth and that the spirit empowers and get your fuel from the fact that he is coming at you at infinite speed right now. Song of Songs 3.6 I think captures this perfectly in a verse where the bridegroom is coming after the bride and says, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Nothing's going to stop the bridegroom coming after the bride. He is the reward. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want to invite you to come to these stairs during the next song. Fact is, if your faith is anything other, he's approaching you at infinite speed, but not as a husband, but as the perfect judge. Don't regret for all eternity that you trusted lesser things in this life. There will be folks here to pray with you, to discuss these things further. If you would like to speak, I'll be over here as well. But will you consider the reproaches of Christ better than anything this world offers? The Holy Spirit has convinced you of these things today. Please come and share these things with someone. Don't bottle them up. As soon as you leave here, Satan's going to be after his blinding work again today. And if you are here and you simply need to repent of letting things your eyes see cloud out the hope of Jesus, we'd love to pray with you. You can come pray. You can pray where you're at. You can come pray with someone. We need real power to press forward. And if Christ is your all in all, I encourage you to keep running. Don't lose heart. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I've come to life, give life and life abundant. He's coming. Let's pray. So, Father, even now in this moment, we trust that you have done what you said you would, and that's stir up the hearts of your people through your word. Would you now give strength and power to let faith be rooted in your promises, be expressed in new and fresh actions that conform to Christ in the word and to sink our teeth deeply in the reward that's coming. God, help us to see Christ and to surrender everything to him again today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.